Good morning, City Church Garland. So blessed, blessed to be back with you guys and to share the word, study the word together. David has slain his thousands, but Jesus Christ has slain his tens of thousands. Amen. In First Chronicles 12, in the midst of a list of leaders from the twelve tribes of Israel, it's one of these long lists that you see throughout the Bible. It's talking about all these different men from each of the tribes of Israel that are rallying to David, that are making him king. And then out of the blue, as you're reading it, it talks about the men of Issachar. And when it talks about the men of Issachar, it just adds this incredible sentence to the men of Issachar. It says this, Men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Men of Issachar. Men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. What a hidden gem there in the middle of the books of Chronicles. It's one of those verses that really jumps off the page and just kind of punches me in the face. I don't know if it does you, but some of those verses just stand out. Such depth of wisdom packed into that little sentence. How did this tribe, the tribe of Issachar, above all the other tribes, understand the times and know what Israel should do. And more importantly, how can we understand our times living in Texas, in America, in the West, in 2021? And what should we, as followers of Christ, a part of the global church of Jesus Christ, families in Christ, individual men and women in Christ, what should we do? May God and Christ open our minds and enlighten the eyes of our hearts. That's our prayer this morning from these scriptures so that we can answer those questions and so that we may better serve him in our generation, in this generation. September 30th, 1938, that's the day that the infamous Munich Agreement was signed between Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of England, and Adolf Hitler. I think you all heard of him. If you don't know about this agreement, they, they literally just handed over Czechoslovakia to Hitler and to the Nazis. Oh, you can just have it, Hitler. Will you, will you just stop invading other lands, please? We'll give you this one, and they just stop invading lands. And Hitler said, yeah, sure, sure, I'll do that. Where, where do I sign? Chamberlain returned. He delivered a speech with roaring crowds saying, peace for our time. Peace for our time. There's a picture of it when he was given that speech. Less than a year later, Hitler invaded Poland and World War II began. He broke his agreement. He broke that agreement. I mean, I can't think of a better historical example of an anti-man of Issachar than Neville Chamberlain. He did not understand the times in which he lived. And he did not know what England should do. In fact, most historians agree, if he had continued in power any longer than he did, all of Europe would have been plunged into the hellish darkness of Nazi rule. And who knows what would have happened to the other nations. You can watch uh, Man in the High Castle, an excellent series. Uh, I think it's on Amazon Prime. Just watch the first season, get the rest. But the first season is excellent. And if, if you just want a taste of what would have happened if the Nazis had won. But praise God, a man of Issachar did rise up 
I would say God raised him up to crush the Nazi menace. Winston Churchill, he actually said, my favorite picture of uh, Winston, my, uh, he actually said this after the Munich Agreement was signed, when Chamberlain was saying, peace for our time, Churchill said this, you were given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor, and you will have war. And you will have war. And he was right. And after Churchill became prime minister, replacing Neville, they basically begged him to come in power and do something to help them. He said this. This is, this is I would say, one of his most polar opposite speeches to the Peace for Our Time speech. He, he did many that were the polar opposite of that speech, but this is one of my favorites. He says, you were give, he, sorry, he says, I have thought carefully in these last few days of whether it was part of my duty to consider entering negotiations with that man, meaning Hitler. But this means we should become a slave state. I am convinced that every man of you would rise up and tear me down from my place if I were for one moment to contemplate parley or surrender. If this Long Island story of ours is to end, let it end when only when each of us lies choking on his own blood, lying on the ground. That's a man of Iskar. That's a man of Issachar. He understood the times. And he knew what his nation should do. Alexander Solzhenitsyn immediately came to my mind as I thought of men of Issachar, especially of more recent times. He also was political like Churchill, but he was also a very strong Christian. Orthodox Christian. He actually came to Christ while he was in the Gulags. He tells that story in the Gulag Archipelago. I finished that book after a year and a half. Three volumes over 2,000 pages. is incredible. They have an abridged version you can read as well. But Solzhenitsyn grew up in communist Russia. He was arrested in 1945 and sent to the Gulags for eight years. After he was released, he wrote books, many books, not just the Gulag Archipelago, but one day in the life of Denis, uh, Ivan Denisovich. I say these Russian names. And he wrote these books revealing for the first time to the world the horrors, the atrocities, the evils that were happening in these basically Soviet Union concentration camps, the gulags. And a lot of people argue that these books revealing that truth helped to bring down the Soviet Empire as it eventually did fall. And he captured in one line, Solzhenitsyn captured in one line, why all the evils and the horrors of the Soviet Empire happened. Why did they all happen? Men have forgotten God. Men have forgotten God. He said this in a speech in 1983. He said this, More than half a century ago, while I was still a child, do the math, that would have been 1933, <laughs> amazing, in 1933 when he was young, he was listening to these older Russians who were probably born in the 1800s saying this, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today 
to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Incredible. 60 million murdered, hundreds of millions suffered, millions more falsely imprisoned. Christians, of course, in all these communist areas, still to this day, where, ruled over, where communist rules over them, Christians persecuted, imprisoned, killed. Why? Why did it all happen? Well, Solzhenitsyn, the man of Iskar, he said, the leaders, the rulers, the men, they forgot God. Even better, they rejected God. They abandoned God. They went after idols. They went after other gods. What then is the answer from Solzhenitsyn of what they should do? Well, he says it all throughout his books and in his speeches. Return to God. It would be the opposite. <laughs> if all this was caused by forgetting God and abandoning God, then the answer is to return to God. Return to truth. Return to morality. Return to Christ. Which is basically also what Solzhenitsyn said in another famous speech he gave at Harvard, I think in 1973. Unfortunately, the students of Harvard, I don't think they listened. The leaders of Harvard didn't listen either. Solzhenitsyn understood the times, and he knew what not just Russia should do, but what the world should do. Return to God. The Bible is full of sons and daughters of Issachar. Just going back to the very, very beginning in Genesis, Joseph was a man of Issachar. Joseph had dreams of seven years of plenty. And then he had dreams that after those seven years of plenty, there'd be seven years of famine. And so he knew what Israel, literally at that time, remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel, his father, it was just Jacob and his 12 sons and his daughter Dina. He knew, literally knew what Israel, and that was all Israel was at that time, should do. What should they do? Come to Egypt. I'll take care of you. This is where the food is. You'll survive if you come to Egypt. And Joseph literally saved Israel because of the wisdom God gave him. In fact, Joseph's Egyptian name, he was given this name by the Pharaoh. It's really cool. I actually just learned this uh, not too long ago. The name, it's in the Bible, Zephanah Pania. I learned it actually is an Egyptian name. Egyptologists have shown. This is, th th these words show up in the Egyptian uh, language of the time. And guess what it means? God speaks. God lives. How cool is that? The Pharaoh named Joseph. God speaks. God lives. When a man of Issachar is around you, you know God is alive. And you know God is speaking. The kings Hezekiah and Josiah are two, are two of the only righteous kings. Remember, all the, north, the kings of the northern kingdom were wicked. And just about all the southern kings after David and Solomon were wicked. But Hezekiah and Josiah, their reigns were some shining lights in the midst of that darkness. And I think probably the author of Chronicles had them in mind when he told their stories later as men of Issachar, even though they weren't actually of the tribe of Issachar. Both of them lived in times of idolatry, of sin, unfaithfulness to Yahweh and his word. But both of them knew what to do. They were men of action. They abolished the idols. In fact, I love the stories of Josiah taking the sledgehammer to the, to the idols in the temple. They cleansed. They rebuilt the temple. They rediscovered the scriptures. Even, and they found, both of them found creative ways to get the scriptures to their people. And they restored the great festivals like Passover 
and the Feast of Tabernacles to rejoice and to praise the God of Israel and to remember his great wonders and his great feats for them. And in Hezekiah's day, the barbarians of that time, the Assyrians, were literally at his gates. They had just destroyed the kingdom in the north and brought them into exile. So what did Hezekiah do? It's a text later in 2 Chronicles 32. I have it up on the screen. He consulted the prophet of Isaiah, and then he and Isaiah went into the temple, probably didn't go in the Holy of Holies, but they were probably near there, and they got on their knees and they cried out to the God of heaven. How cool is that? The king and the prophet on their knees together, praying and crying out to heaven. You get this detail in, in Chronicles. You don't get it in Kings. And what happened? Well, God sent an angel and destroyed 185,000, decimated the Assyrian army. And Sennacherib returned home, and <laughs> not so good for Sennacherib. His own kids killed him in the temple. Bad day for Sennacherib. Time fails me to tell you about other sons and daughters of Issachar. Daniel, how could we not think of Daniel, understood the times. In fact, from reading scripture, he was a prophet, but he was reading the prophet Jeremiah. And he reads in Jeremiah, oh, the, 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 the exile, the 70 year exile is almost done. That means that, that Israel needs to come back to the land. They need to come back and rebuild the temple. And, and Daniel gets on his knees and he starts praying the great prayer in Daniel 9. And God answered that prayer. Now, don't, don't forget the ladies. Esther was a woman of Issachar. Esther knew the times. She understood exactly what to do, which was risk her life, lay down her life, so that Israel would be saved against the Hitler of her time, that vile Haman. The true type of Christ in a woman in the Old Testament is Esther. Paul, the man of Jerusalem, Greece, and Rome, he knew the times after he came to Christ. He was an anti-man of Issachar, fighting against the church, trying to commit genocide on the church, and then Christ appeared to him, he became a man of Issachar. He knew, I need to go all throughout the Roman Empire, and preach Christ crucified, even though it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. And you go out through, throughout church history. I'll just give you two. St. Augustine. God raised up St. Augustine, one of the greatest minds after the Apostle Paul in church history. He lived at a time, the end of the Roman Empire, <laughs> at least in the West. Barbarians were literally at the gate and taking over city after city. And the people at that time, the Christians were saying, because it, it was led by Christians at that time, the Caesars were Christian. And they thought, oh, the Rome is falling. That must be, mean that Christ is not real. He's not alive. He's not protecting us. And Christianity is false. And Augustine said, no, 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 no. Rome is not the eternal city. God's city is the eternal city. And he wrote one of the greatest books of church history. Greatest books ever written the city of God, to make that argument. The nations of the world will fall, but Christ's kingdom will remain forever. And of course, Martin Luther. We talked about Halloween. We can also be celebrating Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation that same day, October 31st, coming up soon. He looked around a little over 500 years ago as a monk, as a professor, looked around at all the corruption all the evil leadership, all the, all the false teaching. And as he was lecturing and, and, and studying the book of Romans, he came to the realization he rediscovered the gospel of grace. 
that justification by faith, that it is a gift of God. The righteousness of God is a gift given to all who believe. It's not something we work for. It's something we receive as a gift because of the blood of Christ. And when he stood before the wicked rulers of his time, they brought him to trial, and he said, Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. God has always had and will always have his men and women of Issachar in just the right places who understand the times and know what his people should do. We'll turn to First Chronicles 10. I want to give you a little bit of the context of this section leading up to our great verse. If you haven't read Chronicles in a while, shame on you, but if you haven't read Chronicles in a while, the first nine chapters is genealogies, and you should have all those memorized. It starts with Adam, and at the end of chapter 9, it gets you to David and Saul. Okay? He brings you up, the author of Chronicles brings you up to David and Saul. But it's all through genealogies, the first nine chapters. Then chapter 10 begins the narrative. And in chapter 10, he's basically retelling the death of King Saul. You get the impression that for the author of Chronicles, he doesn't really care about the 58 chapters that you get about Saul in the books of Samuel. He skips over those. He just, he just covers one chapter, the end of 1 Samuel, the death of Saul. Because why? He wants to get to David. Let's get to David. David's what it's all about. We're going to talk about David. Forget Saul. But I just want you to see here at the end of 1 Chronicles 10, his kind of summary of the death and really the life of Saul. And at one point on the author of Chronicles, of course, these, these stories are already in the books of Samuel. And like I said, so the author of Chronicles retells them, but for his own purposes, you need to keep in mind that the author of Chronicles is living probably in the 5th century B.C. I like to think it was Ezra the priest. He would have been alive at the same time that this book was written. I like to think the author was Ezra, but we don't know ultimately who it was. But this was 500 years after David had died when this book was written. And there was no son of David sitting, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. They didn't have a king in Jerusalem. Remember, they had Nehemiah, they had Ezra, they had leaders, but they didn't have a king. There was no one they were saying as the son of David and the king of Israel at the time. So the Jews of the 5th century B.C., including this author, all the way up to the time of Jesus, were looking for this new son of David. Because they, they knew the covenant God had made with David. One of your sons will sit on his throne forever so they were looking for that son of David. They were looking for a warrior type. Messiah. That's the key word for it. They were, it was a messianic hope. They wanted someone to come like David from before, but a new David, more powerful, who would rescue them, who would save them. I would always say a Schwarzenegger like Messiah, but I, I, I've updated that. I mean, we got to update Schwarzenegger. So I always say now a John Wick Messiah. They were looking for a John Wick Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah that had like a hundred guns in his hands to kill all the Romans. And Chronicles is full of hopes and dreams of this Messiah to come. That's why it's pretty much all about David and the sons of David after him. So look at the summary. First, third, very damning summary, 13 and 14 of chapter 10. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance. Remember, went to the witch, witch of Endor. And he did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death. I love that. God killed him. So God killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Like I said, what a, what a damning 
obituary, obituary for Saul. Really a, a tragic life. A Shakespearean tragedy when you study the life of Saul. We're given three reasons why God rejected him as king. He was unfaithful to Yahweh. He rejected the word of Yahweh. And he did not seek Yahweh. Or at least not with a true heart. If we follow Saul in one or all three of those, we also will have a tragedy in our lives. We also will fail utterly in life and God's judgment will fall upon us. Imagine them saying that about you after you die. He rejected the word of Christ. He was not faithful to Christ and he did not seek Christ. May it not be said of any of us. Saul was definitely another anti-man of Issachar. David, on the other hand, as the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. The only person in the Bible that is said about. And so, wisely, the wise men, the, the people who are of the tribes, who know what Israel should do, they're coming to David. So look at chapter 11. First three verses. All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, even while Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord your God said to you, you will be shepherd of my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, he made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, as the Lord had promised through Samuel. And if you remember in the books of Samuel, David had already been anointed in a private ceremony with his family, when the prophet Samuel anointed him as a young man. And now he's anointed Publicly, you see, all of the stories of David really foreshadow different aspects of the life of Christ. Christ also had two anointings. The baptism, which is more the private anointing, and when he returns, all Israel will be saved. He will be recognized by all. Interestingly, right after this, we're not going to read it, but David, immediately as he is anointed king, he makes Jerusalem his, the center of his kingdom, the capital of Israel. He calls it, he renames it, the city of David. And interestingly, that still is the capital of Israel. 3,000 years later, they still speak the same language David spoke. And they still have the same scriptures. <laughs> truly, truly a miracle. The rest of chapter 11 is listing Dave, David's mighty men and their exploits. And I love these mighty men. I love these mighty men of David. I just want to look at a few of them because they're so fun. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. These were the chiefs of David's mighty men. They, together with all Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land, as the Lord had promised. This is the list of David's mighty men. Jashobim, a Hakmanite, was chief of the officers. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahuhai, one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pas Damim. When the Philistines gathered there for battle, at a place where there was a field full of barley, the troops fled, for, fled from the Philistines. Notice, all of David's troops fled, except for, it sounds like a handful stayed, and Eleazar was one of them. But they took their stand in the middle of the field, literally a handful of these guys, Eleazar won. They defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. If you, if you parallel in 2 Samuel 23, you also have the list of the mighty men. And Eleazar, it says that his, he was hacking down the Philistines so fast and for so long that his hand froze to his sword. His hand froze to his sword. I love that detail. And Eleazar, notice, 
Maybe there was a few with him, but ultimately he stood his ground. You had the retreating cowards running this way, and the Philistines there at Eleazar went straight for them. Sometimes we have to stand alone and fight. Sometimes even if everybody, if the whole culture is going away from God and going from Christ and going from truth, we have to stand for the truth. Us against the world. You against the world. You must stand alone sometimes and fight. Skip down to verse 20. Abishai. I love Abishai. The brother of Joab was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. He was doubly honored above the three and became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Sometime when you have time, I want you to take a concordance and look up all the places Abishai shows up and just read those passages. You'll love Abishai. You all need a friend. We all need friends like Abishai. You need to pray for friends like Abishai. Every time he's mentioned, he is doing something for David. He's fighting for David. He's defending David. He goes too far many times. He wants to cut people's head off who says something bad to David. But he is a true and loyal friend. He is, he's Wyatt Earp's uh, Doc Holliday in Tombstone, one of my favorite <laughs> friendship dynamics ever in, in a movie. He's a true and loyal friend. Pray for friends like Abishai, and even better, be a friend like Abishai. Be a friend like Abishai to those around you. I can testify, Keith, Keith is an Abishai. Keith is a friend like Abishai. Look at 22. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. We get the most about him. He struck down two Moab's, two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. It's a lion killer. And he struck down an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall, almost as tall as Goliath. Although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Well, I think I would too. I think the guy who killed two of Moab's best men, killed the lion, killed the seven and a half foot Egyptian, yeah, put him in charge of uh, my bodyguard. I'll take him. These mighty exploits of these mighty men for David should light a fire within us to want to perform mighty exploits for our greater David, for Jesus Christ. These mighty men love David. When we read about them, what are they doing? They're always ready to fight for David. They're always ready to die for David, and many of them did. Where is our passionate, insatiable love for the King of Kings who loved me and died for me? Has your love for Christ grown cold? Maybe there's things you need to repent of, but repent more than anything of that. Because all sin, all, all evil in your heart ultimately stems from that, the lack of love for Christ. Hear Christ saying to your heart, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? May that rekindle your love and passion for him. So more keep rallying to David from every tribe of Israel. Look at chapter 12. David becomes, the scripture says, David becomes greater and greater because Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, is with him. I love that verse. He becomes greater and greater. Look at chapter 12. Verse first. These were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was banished from the presence of Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were armed with bows and were able to shoot arrows or to sling stones right-handed or left-handed. They were kinsmen of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And it lists these warriors of Benjamin. 
Skip down to verse 8. Some, some Gadites defected to David at his stronghold in the desert. They were brave warriors, ready for battle, and able to handle the shield and spear. Their faces were the faces of lions. And they were as swift as gazelles in the mountains. And then skip down to 14. The Gadites. These Gadites were army commanders. The least was a match for a hundred, and the greatest for a thousand. It was they who crossed the Jordan in the first month, when it was overflowing all its banks. And they put to flight everyone living in the valleys, to the east and to the west. Don't you love that? These Gadites, they swam across a rushing Jordan River. They swam across this river. Why? To get to David. Because they want to join David's army. I think when the author of Chronicles wrote about David, as I said before, he dreamed about the Messiah. He was dreaming about, he didn't know the full implications of what the Messiah would do, but he knew God's promise to David that one of his sons would reign on his throne in Jerusalem forever and ever. And he was dreaming about the Messiah as he told these stories about David. And when we read these stories about David, we have far greater understanding. We should see our greater David, Jesus Christ. What would we not do to join his ranks? What river would we not swim across? What mountain would we not climb to get to him? As my professor at, at DTS, uh, great professor, Dr. Hannah, he said one time, if Christ is in hell, I'm going to go to hell. Because that's what it's, it's not the place, it's the person. Heaven, isn't it? It'll be nice, but that's not it. Christ is what makes heaven heaven. Wherever Christ is, that is paradise. Look at verse 18. We see the Spirit is involved. The Holy Spirit is involved in this rallying to David. The Spirit came upon an Amasai. He was chief of the thirty, one of the mighty men. And he said, We are yours, O David. We are with you, O son of Jesse. And then in, the, the, in my translation it says, Success, success. But in the Hebrew it's shalom, shalom, peace, peace to you, and peace to those who help you. For your God will help you. So David received them and made them leaders of his raiding bands. I love that. That's rallying behind David, as I said, spirit led. The Holy Spirit is coming upon these leaders and guiding them and telling them what to do. We are yours, O David. Of course, we should say, we are yours, O Jesus. Look at verse 22. The last verse of this section. Day after day, men came to help David until he had a great army, like the army of God, like the hosts of God. It's a great great verse because it's, it's comparing David's army to God's army. Remember David, when he fought with uh, Goliath, remember what he said when he came against Goliath? He said, you come at me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. It's a great picture. David's army is like an extension of the angelic army, of God's armies. And here we get to the immediate context of our great verse, the men of, us, the men of Issachar verse. Look at verse 23. These are the numbers of the men armed for battle who came to David Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him, as the Lord had said. And then like, like it starts with the men of Judah, which makes sense. That's David's own tribe, but then it keeps going. And so people, a certain portion of each of the tribes of Israel, join David. And that's where we get in verse 32. Out of the blue, it just adds this great little nugget of truth with men of Issachar. Men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. And let's just finish out that last section, the last verses, beginning of verse 38. 
All these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks. They came to Hebron fully determined to make David king over all Israel. They came with one heart to make him king. All the rest of the Israelites were also of one mind to make David king. The men spent three days there with David, eating and drinking for their families that supplied provisions for them. Also their neighbors from far away as Issachar, Zebulun, and Naphtali came bringing food on donkeys, camels, mules, and oxen. There were plentiful supplies of flour, fig cakes, raisin cakes, wine, oil, cattle, and sheep. For there was joy in Israel. Sounds pretty good. There was joy in Israel. This is the first of 11 times the word joy is used in the books of Chronicles. Serving in David's kingdom brings joy. It ushers in joy. And again, when the author of Chronicles is recounting this, and many commentators admit this, he has to be thinking of the Messianic banquet. He's hoping for this reuniting of Israel, because Israel wasn't united at the time when he was writing this. He was hoping for this reuniting of Israel under the new David. There'd be feasting and drinking with joy. And as we as Christians, we know this kind of peace, this kind of joy, only comes from the greater David, from Jesus Christ. And what's pictured here, I think, is just an Old Testament version of what we see in Revelation 19, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And even what Jesus described as sitting at a table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets. And the best of all, Jesus is at the table. That's still to come. For the men of Issachar, they understood clearly the times. Saul was dead. That led to a civil war. You get a lot more detail about that in Samuel. The barbarians, the Philistines, were literally at their gates because they had just conquered Saul's army. Idolatry and worship of false gods were within Israel and without. And so there was only one thing for Israel to do. What, what, what should they do? Go to David. Run to David. That's the answer. Rally to David and crown him king. Fight for him. And if necessary, die for him. Because Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, he's with David. He's with David. And so where David goes, that's where we're going to follow. So what about us? What about us now in 2021? I think it's clear that the times are like the times of Solzhenitsyn's. Men have forgotten God, not just men, we have many women leaders, and they've forgotten God too. Many leaders across the West are anti-God, actively anti-Christ, anti the values of the scriptures of God, of Christ, actively pushing an authoritarian agenda on us of control. And sadly, many of the atrocities of the 20th century may very well repeat themselves in our century. God willing, they won't. But what should we do? No matter what the times are, whether they're times of pure freedom and prosperity or authoritarianism and control, no matter what, we have a clear mission. We must rally to the greater David, Jesus Christ. We must crown him king over every area of our life. We must follow him. We must fight for him. David has slain his thousands, but Jesus Christ has tens of thousands. Let me close with just four characteristics that I thought of as I was thinking about all these different men and women of Issachar. These are four characteristics I find for all of them that God willing we will have. First, men of Issachar are spirit-led. May the spirit of the Messiah come upon us. If we know Christ, we're in, the spirit of God indwells us. But it's an active 
prayer and command to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be ambushed by the Holy Spirit, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's what we want daily, every day. Jesus, as he walked this earth, he was filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit, nonstop. That's how he changed the world. The spirit of the Messiah came upon the men of Issachar to say, we are yours, O Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, peace, peace to all who follow him. One of the ways I believe this could happen is as we pray without ceasing. Praying without ceasing doesn't mean we're always on our knees. I like how one church father put it. It's not always being on our knees or physical prayer. It's always the desire. Always the readiness. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. To always have that desire. Always have that readiness. Always seeking the guidance of the Spirit. Asking Him for that wisdom that He, the Scripture says, generously wants to give us without finding fault. This should be our daily prayer, to be guided by the Spirit. Second, men of Issachar daily seek out the prophets and the wise. The prophets and the wise. Anti-men of Issachar, like Saul, like so many of the wicked kings of the north and the south of, of Israel, they rejected the prophets, they imprisoned them, they killed many of them. But true men of Issachar, like David... He always had Nathan and Gad in his council. Hezekiah sought Isaiah. Josiah had Jeremiah. We must daily be immersed in the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the Gospels, the Epistles, and Revelation. We have far more than they have. An embarrassment of riches. Far more than they had with their prophets. But the wise are not only in the scriptures. And that was part of the king's council. People who understood the times would not necessarily be people who were Religious, sometimes secular people, would be very wise in understanding the times. And so they would seek them as well. Moses knew all the Egyptian literature. Daniel studied all the Babylonian literature. Paul knew the Greek philosophers and quoted them. We must seek the wise men and women of our day who understand the times. I like the story in, in the Old Testament. It says that the Israelites, they didn't have the sharpening tools for their weapons, so they had to go down to the Philistines to get their tools sharpened. They had to go to the Philistines to sharpen their axes and their swords. See, sometimes we have to go to the pagans to sharpen our weapons because they might have things that we don't have. And so sometimes we have to go to them. And I have a long list of people that I respect, whether they're Christians or non-Christians. And I, if I just gave you a list, you just forget them. So afterwards, you could ask me for an email, and I'll email them. I can email you a list, podcast, articles. I think wise people to listen to. People like Jordan Peterson. People like Douglas Murray. People like Ayan Hirsi Ali. Christians like N.T. Wright. Rowan Williams. There's a, there's a lot of wise people out there from different walks of life that we can learn from to better understand the times. The third is that men of Issachar fight. If you join David, imagine joining David and saying, Oh, David, I want to follow you, but I don't, I don't like this fighting stuff. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to fight David. I'm going to stay on the sidelines. No, no. If you join David, you're going to fight. It's like in the movie Fight Club. You go to the Fight Club for the first time, you have to fight. That was one of the rules. You know the other rule. We must take part in this holy warfare going on every day. It's not peacetime. We're not in that messianic banquet yet. We're not feeding, feasting and eating and drinking at the table with Christ yet. We are in a prelude with the Lord's Supper. But right now is not peace time. It's warfare time. As Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. 
But take courage. I have conquered. I have overcome. I have been victorious over the world. We must walk in the greater David's victories. We don't hack down Philistines and cut off heads. That's not what we do, sadly. Some religious people still do that. But that's not what we do. We take every captive, we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We take up our swords, the word of God. The sword of the spirit is the word of the living God. We need to wield that sword. We need to hack with that sword. Cast out demons. It opens people's minds. It penetrates to the depths of people's hearts. And I think about fighting. Just one practical example of fighting. What does it look like for us to fight, especially as, as men of Issachar? I think there's a faceless, there's faceless governmental tyrants that, if the scriptures are true, are led by evil powers in the heavenly realms, demonic powers in the heavenly realms, and they want to destroy you. They want to destroy followers of Christ. They want to destroy your family. And they want to especially destroy your kids. And that's who they're after. And you're probably not ever called to fight a lion on a snowy day in a pit. But you are called to train your kids up in the way they should go. You need to be in the business of what your kids are learning at school. You may need to go to some school board meetings and cause some good trouble. You need to know what they're teaching your kids. Are they teaching your kids gender fluidity, that men can become pregnant, to hide their abortion, to hide their sex operation from you? Are they separating and pitting the kids against each other by their races? Are they having them pray in class to Aztec gods? By the way, all that I've just listened, I didn't make that up. That's all things I just read from the last two weeks in California public schools. And I guarantee you some of that is happening in public schools right here in Texas. Wake up. The Philistines are upon you. Don't be afraid. Get in the fight. Our God is a God of battles. Lastly, and most importantly, men and women of Issachar crown the greater David, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Crown him. Crown him Lord of all. We must lift up Christ, him crucified and risen again, tell all of all his wonders, all his magnificence, all his beauty, and many, not all, not all will come, but many hearts will be melted and they will come and rally to Jesus Christ. When he is lifted up, all men and women who are his sheep will be drawn unto him. As the great hymn says, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Amen. 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 Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, as whoever wrote this book of Chronicles was dreaming about the Messiah. And we thank you that these dreams have come true. And you have sent your Son, the Messiah, the Son of God, to die on the cross to save the world, to overcome, to be victorious over Satan and all his minions, and to give us this victory in Jesus. We thank you for the salvation we have in in Christ. And I pray that we would be men and women of Issachar who know the the times and know what, what, what our people should do. And God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and bless all the kids here. I pray all of them would know Jesus and love Jesus and serve him all of their days. Thank you, Lord, for your word in this time together. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.